from the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. Okay, we're ready to go. Michelle, are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Mark? I'm ready. All right, let's do this. And it's Tiny House Podcast. This is Perry. This is Michelle. Nice This one. is Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and today we have Lee Para. I hope I said her last name right. You did. How can you okay, mess that awesome. one up? I know, really? right? It could have been really? Pura, Pura. I don't know. You even remembered it, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I often have trouble remembering the guest <laughs> name. Lee is one of the co-founders of, can I say, the now defunct Boneyard Studios? Actually, we are still in existence. We are just in a few different places, but we're still hosting events and tiny house education so at Boneyard Studios. <laughs> yeah. It's really fun. It's not deep. We're just not a physical space anymore. Scattered to the winds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, yes, co-founder of Boneyard Studios and a tiny house owner. She built her own tiny house. And uh, we'd like to welcome you to the show, Lee. Welcome. Thank you. You're Fun welcome. to be here. Yeah, yeah. It's glad to have you. Or good to have you. Uh, so, um, of course, we're going to jump right into what happened with Boneyard, but we want to talk about other things, too. Um, why don't you tell us a story first of how you got into tiny houses? Sure, yeah. Um, well, I think like many folks, I, you know, kind of came across a video of Jay Schaefer on the Internet. But uh, before that, I was really interested in alternative building, and I had taken a straw bale building workshop here in Virginia, but I had been introduced to straw bale construction when I was living out in Oregon. Um, and for those who don't know me, I've moved around a lot in my life. I grew up partly overseas. My parents did international education. That instilled a bunch of wanderlust in me. And so basically my whole life I've moved every year or two. Um, and D.C. has now been the longest place I've ever lived, which is kind of crazy. It's been seven years. Wow. Um, wow. With, some, with some trips down to Latin America for four months or two months at a time just to, just to get that travel bug in me satisfied but uh, so a few years into living in DC I wasn't sure if I wanted to stay here for the long term but I was kind of ready to have a place finally that I might call home after so much moving around Um, and for those of you familiar with DC real estate it's very expensive and I didn't know that I was that committed to the city um, to buy a row house here and find roommates and do that whole gig. So I came across this video in my exploring alternative building techniques of Jay Schaefer. And this was probably back in 2010. And I was like, oh, wow, that's perfect. You know, a little house, but it's on wheels. So if I leave DC, I can move it. Um, And so for a good year, I just Googled tiny houses on wheels, Washington, DC, and didn't really find anything except one guy uh, who had built in Florida, but I knew now lived in DC. And so I just Googled his name because he didn't respond to the email that he had on this blog post. And I found out that he worked where I worked. So I kind of stalked him. We went over coffee. (laughs) Then he told me that, you know, it would be a great idea to take a tiny house workshop because I would meet other people in this area who also wanted to build tiny houses. So I signed up for the Tumbleweed Workshop in the summer of 2011. And it was the last one that Jay Schaefer taught when he was still with them. Um, and so I got to meet, you know, a bunch of people in the area and I started a meetup group and there was about 30 of us who came to my apartment one Sunday afternoon and started talking about tiny houses and perhaps doing them in the city. 
Um, another friend and I started looking for some property to perhaps do a community. And then I went away for a while uh, down to Latin America and came back to D.C. And she had bought a condo, so that didn't happen. Um, then I was at an event and, and met another guy who said, hey, I want to do tiny houses. I've been thinking about doing one in the city as well. And so that was one of the co-founders of Boneyard Studios. And from there, we started meeting with a bunch of other folks. There were probably about five of us originally who were really interested. One of the gals dropped off. Um, another guy came on board. So that was really my story was just, you know, going from Googling around, not finding anyone in the area who had built one to then starting a meetup group after this workshop. Um, the other thing I want to mention is that the first two people that I actually did meet who were building here were both two single moms um, who were not public about their builds for other reasons. But I really, I thought that was um I always like to bring that story up because I think there's a lot of people doing this out there and just because they don't have blogs or perhaps they don't want to be that visible with their projects because they have other things to worry about, uh, like children involved, um, that I think there's a lot more happening in cities than we might realize. Can you, I guess you can't say why those two people were building their tiny houses. Why they were? Yeah. Um, one one was, you know, she was a single mom. She had a daughter who was about 16, I think. I met her daughter, too. Uh, and they were going to live in the tiny house for a while, and then her daughter was going to take the tiny house off to college with her. Oh. Um, the other woman was building. I don't think she have actually ever finished. Um, someone complained because she was kind of building in the street in, in this one neighborhood in D.C., so then she moved off uh, to the suburbs to build in someone's backyard. And I, I kind of lost track on her build. I'm not sure if she ever finished. She was just building right on the street? Yeah. it was. Yeah, that was my understanding from what she said. So I thought, well, I could see why that might yeah, be a parking trailer. Yeah, that might be a little bit of an issue. <laughs> wow. So, Lee, we got the opportunity to meet at the Jamboree uh, last year. Hello again. Um, and that was one of the things that you had mentioned at the Jamboree, which really stood out the most for me. You, you had the opportunity to, to speak several times, but, but one thing you said is that um, all the people that attended the Jamboree, but you said the, the, the true tiny house movement, the tiny house people are not here. They're out there. They're living in backyards. They're living quietly. They're under the radar. Um, which is what really makes the, the tiny house movement and our numbers, for lack of a better term, um, hard to pin down. There's so many people living under the radar. Do you want to talk about that? I mean, do you want to talk about what inspired you to, to sort of make that statement? Um, it, that, that was the most uh, poignant statement, I think, that, that I heard almost the entire week. So, Michelle, unfortunately... I heard everything except you cut out when you were saying the statement that I actually made. So can you just tell me that <laughs> statement again? <laughs> you said the, the, something along the lines of, you know, um, this is great. The tiny house jamboree is great. We have all these tiny house people here. But the real tiny house movement is not here. It's out there. They're living oh, right. quietly under the radar in backyards. And uh, that was a very poignant um, moment for me to, to see mm -hmm. that, that we're the advocates, but we're not the movement. You want to talk about movement? Yeah. Yeah, so you, you cut out a bit again, but I remember what I said. Okay. I think, I, I mean, I really said that there because, well, A, we were in Colorado. Colorado is a very white state, but um, I live in Washington, D.C., and, you know, it's, 
I think what we see portrayed in the tiny house movement are it's a certain demographic. And what's that demographic? Um, I guess my point with that was what's that? I was asking what what is that? Wow. Um, does your <laughs> does your headphone have a mic on it? You know what? I might take off. I might take this out for a minute. Oh shoot. Okay, my computer is kind of freaking out. I'm going to take off my headphone for a minute. Okay. Is that any better? Yeah, we're just getting. We're, it, yeah. It's like it's like your it's like your like mic is avalanche. rubbing against. It's like your mic is rubbing against um, your clothing. So yeah. That's not. Oh, that might have been it. I do have a sweater. Hold on a second. Let me try. That actually might have been it because I have a sweater with a high collar on. I'll just hold this away from Perfect. my sweater. That's, That's way, good way better. Right there. Way Can better. you guys hear? Yay! Okay, so where were we? Oh, you. Were, Perry had asked you about about your um your um assessment of the movement, uh, the tiny house movement's demographics. Right, and so I think I. There was a comment that came out on one of the tiny house people threads a while back, uh, maybe a year or so ago, and someone had talked about the movement being overwhelmingly white, and I think Ryan Mitchell or so, some other blogger had kind of chimed in, and there was just, to me, there was a lot of misunderstanding about why certain people build tiny houses and why others don't, um, and it just did not... It just didn't resonate at all with what we've seen in the Washington, D.C. area. And we've had, I mean, thousands of people have toured through my tiny house. We've had, we've hosted four different workshops. Um, and it hasn't been just overwhelmingly white middle class folks who are coming, coming through those events and showing interest. And so I guess my point was is that, you know, the folks who can afford to go to Colorado and take time from their work schedule and make that investment, that's just a small part of, you know, the tiny house movement, if that's what we're calling it, or community. That makes, that makes sense. Does, but, but the people who, who walk through a tiny house to Google it aren't necessarily the same people who are building. Do you know of people of color who are <laughs> building them? Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. So I think yeah, in fact, the, two, the first two women I met, um, one, both were women of color, one African-American, and the other one, I, I think she was Filipina. Um, oh, nice. But plenty of other folks in this area, at least. Um, so I just think it's like anything else. Like, I think the media has kind of glomped on to, you know, like, oh, sort of white middle class hipsters, and I definitely probably fit that demographic quite well. <laughs> Um, but there are tons of folks out there who are building who maybe can't be as public or don't want to be as public with their builds. That was one of our goals. That was one of my goals, actually, in starting Boneyard Studios was that, you know, because I had searched so long to try to find anyone in this area who had built one and to be able to go into one to just see one, you know, luckily I got to know Jay Schaefer, so I got to see his when I was out in California once before I started my build. And then we had a tumbleweed house on the property for a while. But there really weren't any opportunities at that point in time three years ago where you could go and tour a tiny house. Now, luckily, there are. 
Um, so that was really a goal of mine was to be very public about our builds. We didn't know if it was going to work out. We didn't know if the city was going to come and say, you can't do this. Uh, but we were willing to take that risk. And for me, the, the goal of doing something creative in the city to kind of show folks like, hey, you know what? There are other ways to create affordable housing. I don't think tiny houses are even a large portion of our affordable housing strategy, but they can be a small portion of it. Um, and just to kind of get the conversation started, that was as big of a motivation for me to build tiny as the physical structure was. Yeah, I mean, you definitely hit the nail on the head at the at the jamboree. The the demographics there were very very white. Um, however, I think also in general, um, the world or our perception of the tiny house movement really is based on the advocates, the very very public advocates. So who are all um, white? Right. Well, except I do want to bring up Jewel Pearson. So Jewel Pearson, my gypsy soul, um, she's African-American. She's going to be a speaker this year at the Jamboree. So she's kind of a newcomer and, okay. and definitely, um, in the, definitely in the public eye as well. So, so I guess, for lack of a better term, to defense of, to defense of our perception, it's not. Um, I never would go so far as to say I would imagine that people of color wouldn't build, but definitely the demographic is more, um, the, again, their perception is based on who's kind of talking about it the most. Well, one system exactly. does not diversity make. No, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. That's not STA. It's not H. Right. No, you're right. I hope slowly that, to, you know, I that will call it change. I, I think even with the, with the gender stuff, like we've seen that change even in the few years that I've been involved in that when I started, it was interesting to me that most of the people who were building were women. I mean, that is that, you know, if you talk to Tumbleweed who takes their workshops, who buys their plans, who, who buys houses, uh, it's like 60% female, but all of the tiny house companies were these single men, like, mm -hmm. you know, or bloggers were mm -hmm. just men and, and half of them didn't even live in tiny houses. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're seeing that change as well. So, and I, I definitely had a lot of, around gender. Um, just, you know, I have no building experience whatsoever. I did not want to build my own house. In fact, when I do workshops, uh, I spend a lot of time talking with people about whether or not they want to build their house or if they should buy one or be more of a general contractor right. for a build that someone else does because I didn't have the option when I started to buy a fully built tiny house. If I did, if, if I were starting now, I would probably work with Tennessee Tiny Homes or one of the East Coast tiny house companies and get oh, something yeah. built for me. Huh. I didn't really have the desire to build my own. Um, in fact, I hired a friend to, st to do mine for me, uh, but I quickly started dating an architect at that time, and he was helping me a lot. So then my friend was like, well, you don't really need to be paying me when you've got Matt helping you, um, so he worked with Jay, and then they actually both ended up getting other jobs outside of the city, and so then I was stuck with this build that I had no idea how to complete on my own, and I had to learn while doing, um, and so that was a long process for me, and it was, it was a great experience. I don't regret it, but I do think there's many more options now, and I just 
I, I really encourage people to think about the experience they want. If they really want to build their own house and that's really important to them, great. But if they just want to live tiny, if they just want to get into the house, I would buy a house. So, so why do you, going back to the statement that you said about 60% of the tiny house builder community being women, um, we've heard that a lot, of, of course. Why do you think that's the case? Why do, in fact, I was talking with a student from Canada who asked me this question too. Why is it that so many women more than men are building these things? I mean, that's a really good question. I think that the demographics even within that, you know, within the women building are interesting because I think Tumbleweed is one who told me like the majority of those women are like around 60 years old, yeah. you know, you know, definitely like four, five and older. So, and or under thirty. Right. So, my demographic, kind of mid thirties, is not, which makes sense if you think about it, right? Anyone under thirty isn't probably thinking about family yet or anything, and anyone over forty five, fifty probably has either done that or knows that they're not going to have kids. Um, so, I think for the age range, that makes sense. For the fact of it being women. Um, I'm not sure if it was, you know, it, I think partly it could be attributed to the fact that Dee Williams is such a big uh, influence. I mean, I know many, many women who I've met who have built their own tiny houses who really say they were inspired by what Dee did. Huh. Uh, but I don't think they can all be attributed to her. I think I think a lot of it, for me at least, it was just I had, you know, I've been in two long-term relationships where I lived with past partners and... Um, have had roommates for the majority of my life, and I kind of just was ready for my own little space uh, that would always be mine. So really creating a sense of home for myself. And, you know, maybe more women are just realizing, like, hey, I really want my own space um, independent of whatever else I end up doing in life. I wonder if I wonder if it also might have... So, so you said that with D being kind of like the, the maiden hero of, of women doing this thing... Before D, there was J, but we didn't see an outswell, uh, upwelling of men coming out and building these things. And I wonder if it might be sexist comment approaching <laughs> that men, men are like... I think you're famous for them now. That's like four in a row. <laughs> men are like, I can't live in a tiny house because I can't get no women <laughs> if I do that. And well, so, Actually, that's a really good point. Yeah. So a lot of the guys, I, I mean, guys say that all the time. And I have to say... As a woman who I've dated a lot, actually, since I've been in my, you know, in my tiny house in DC, I've been in relationships, but they've been shorter term relationships. Dating is really, I mean, the tiny house brings, I, I don't know, for me, it's, it's been a very positive thing in my dating life. Um, it's a built-in conversation piece. It is. People, I, I try and actually not to introduce it right away. <laughs> like your you know, like, illegitimate like children. Kid. You don't want to introduce your baby. <laughs> right. Right away. They need to prove themselves that. <laughs> When you're back at your house, there's not much to do. It's like, well, we could do this. <laughs> anyway. Why don't you tell me how much you love my tiny house? Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's great to hear. No, I mean, I think that's true. Men are, I think men are raised, um, is this a sexist comment maybe? Men are raised to perform and provide and big strong and bigger is better and we collect things and we have a... We want a man care. I think, you know, they, they have a much, their, their identity is much more closely tied to the dwelling. I, I think, I think that's, I think more specifically, it's men have to compete for women. And when you're, if a man's bringing a woman back to a McMansion and another man's bringing her back to a tiny house, 
with you a know, couple of cats. With a couple, I know. <laughs> same woman, right? Yeah, the yeah. same woman, yeah. yeah. She's not going to go for the tiny house. She's going to go for the McMansion because you can put a lot of kids in there. I know I'm being yeah. really sexist, but that's the, <laughs> that's, the, that's the mindset that men have, right? Did you set the parking brake in the car to go out front? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Away. You guys all live in Portland and D.C., yeah. Most women here would say they have to compete for the men. <laughs> oh, okay, well then. Yeah. <laughs> no, so, I'm just kidding. I, I don't feel that way, but yeah, the, there are definitely people who think that way. Um, but I think you're re- regardless, I mean, I think that's kind of stereotypical, but at the same time, I was out with a friend the other night, and he just bought a condo. You know, he lives in a nice house right now that he rents, but he's sad. He's like, I'm really looking forward to bringing a woman I date home. Like, it just, it makes him feel like he has more to offer for some reason because he owns a house. He, he, I thought you said he was renting the, the condo. Oh, he's renting, renting the condo. condo. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Okay. He just bought a condo, so he's been renting a house, and now uh, that he owns a condo, he feels ownership. like he has more to offer. Got it. Just, to me, that's interesting. Like, I, I've never felt that way. Um, so I'm kind of like, this is where I live. If you, you like right. it or you don't. It, and it's also, it's, I think it's a really good weeding out tool. Well, values and lifestyle. Sure. Yeah, I was going to ask you what is what is your what is your experience bringing men home to staying off the loft, bringing men home <laughs> off the loft. Yes, yeah, nice. let's, let's not have any loft conversations. You just named the episode <laughs> off the loft. Hashtag off, off the loft. loft. Anyway, so what is your experience bringing men to your tiny house, and what are the, what are their reactions if they don't know how to express So usually, I have to. I mean, it's very interesting. If you were out on a date with someone, a first date, you wouldn't necessarily say like, oh, next time can I come see your house? You know, to just anyone's regular house, right? But I get that a lot. Oh, I really want to see your tiny house. Can I come see your tiny house? And it's like, well, um, you got to make it past a few dates before I'm going to invite you over to my house. (laughs) Wow. But yeah. It's a meet the children scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oh. So that's, that's been interesting just to see that people think of it as, and it's partly my own creation. Like uh, when, when we were hosting a lot of events, when we were on the old property, you know, my house was open to the community and, and people coming through it and tiny house concerts. And now that I'm in someone's backyard and living in it full time, it's become less of that. But I think people still think of it as kind of like, oh, yeah, you can just pop by, you know, and your house is open to all which I really like. I like having that. But, you know, with a guy that I've just met, um, I'm not going to invite you over on the first date. But, yeah, I just had someone, I just had a guy dating over uh, last weekend, and we were doing, I, I work on leather stuff, so we were making, I wanted to make some little leather uh, protectors for my hairpin leg couch so when I move it around, it doesn't scratch up my floors. And we had my leather out, and we were cutting it and sewing <laughs> leather. And Again, stuff. we're in Portland, so we're going a whole we're different way with leather. Yeah. Like, oh, this is so hipster. But yeah. honestly, I learned how to do leather making when I lived in Latin America. It's a long-standing trade there. <laughs> so, <laughs> he did so, make a little cozy for a mason pup, and he's like, this is so crazy. <laughs> so I love, uh, I love Boneyard Studio name, but, but Boneyard means um, cemetery on one right. hand, and the other hand it means kind of place for sexual intercourse, kind of. It so, does? Yeah. yeah. You like wow, that. That's the first time I've heard that. So, going to go to the Boneyard. Sure. I didn't know God, that. you guys. Huh. So, yeah. I love the name, but, I mean, did you guys, how, how did that kind of come to pass? It, it actually, the cemetery didn't have as much, it did have some um, factor in the name, but the name really came more from Boneyard in the sense of 
the military term where a boneyard is where you put old planes and, and oh, okay. things yeah. To, yeah. to rest, right? Yeah. And so we used it more because we thought, well, if anyone says like, oh, these, you know, you're, these are your houses, you're living here full time. It's like, no, actually, we're taking this unused piece of land and kind of doing something with it, putting these trailers on them. Um, and so it was more out of, we kind of liked that definition, gotcha. but yeah. And then the cemetery just played right in. It would, it would play differently in Portland. If you were like, do you want to come back to the boneyard and do some stuff with leather? <laughs> <laughs> just I saying. Like that. I kind of like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Double <Sorry>. meaning. <laughs> So give us a little bit of the timeline. You know, you built your tiny house. Um, can you talk a little? We'll go back to your story now. I think we've diverged exactly. from the story. Yes. But that's what we do. So, you know, that's kind of our, <laughs> that's our shtick here. We kind of take a left turn. Wow. So um, can we go back to the timeline um, of your bills and, and when, it, when Boneyard got started? And can you also yeah. talk about sort of finding that lovely little loophole uh, that allowed you to, to start Boneyard. I know the story, but can you tell our listeners? Well, we didn't really have a loophole per se other than, so in D.C. and in other cities like uh, Philadelphia, and, um, there are a lot of these alley lots. So an alley lot is just a piece of property that doesn't have um, a regular street that abuts it. It's just alleyways. Um, and in D.C., those used to be, uh, buildable back in the day. Um, but there was actually, there's a whole long story I'm not going to go into around housing in alley lots and, you know, people kind of almost like tenant in housing in New York where it's really low income housing and people don't have the correct, you know, utilities and services. And, uh, so a lot of those were shut down and those lots were declared non-buildable, but the carriage houses that already existed, um, and are still in existence have, you know, they have kind of like a, they're grandfathered in, uh, but there haven't, there hasn't been able to be any new construction on alley lots. So, uh, but because tiny houses on wheels are trailers, uh, you can park them on an alley lot. And so we really just thought, you know, well, let's build and park them here and, you know, do events and whatnot, but, and then we'll just see what happens from there. So I actually never lived full time in my house. Um, on the old property where we started Boneyard Studios. Both Jay and Brian did, um, but I didn't because I was still building my house. And um, and also we were all off-grid there, so I was doing rainwater collection. We did have 50 amp plugs for the houses, which mm. I used for my house, so I have mine set up like an RV style. Um, so we started in late summer of 2012, and... My house took forever because I used rough sawn lumber for the siding and the roof. And like I said, I had this architect working with me who was great and had all these creative ideas. But then he left uh, to move away. And my builder at that time was already working on Jay and other houses. So I was kind of stuck doing this with friends and trying to find folks to help out. So it took me six months just to do all of my siding and the roof. And um, so it was a really long process for my house just in building it because as anyone who's built their house knows, Michelle, you know, if you're working full time and doing this on the weekends, not to mention one weekend a month was an open house. Another weekend a month was usually a tiny house show because I valued doing the community event so much, my build really took a backseat sometimes to that. Um, it's probably not the smartest thing, but 
it worked out in the end. Uh, so we we were out there, both Jay, me, Brian, and then Elaine uh, from Tiny House Community Association. She had her house out there for a year and a half or two years as well. Um, Jay and I left basically late early fall of not this past fall, but the fall before. So what would that be? 2014. So yeah, it was about two years that we we were out there and really starting Boneyard Studios. Um, I think we will let the Boneyard Studios name die. However, we didn't want it to to die in a negative light. Um, so luckily, we partnered with a local business in town. It's a farm and garden center, and Jay parked his house there. He's been there for almost a year now. Um, and it's been fun. We've had a bigger event space, so we've still been able to do tiny house tours and the tiny house concerts. Um, it was there for our local D.C. State Fair. We've done some educational programming. So, um, yeah, so we still kind of use that name, Boneyard Studio, since folks know it and think about it when when they're looking to, you know, learn about tiny houses in this area. But I think we'll probably kind of let that die. I'm actually involved with a new initiative that's getting off the ground with some other tiny house folks across the country. So I'm going to be investing more of my time into that. And I don't think we're publicly announcing anything yet, but we are going to be doing a workshop here in the spring in D.C. and a few other events around the country. Hmm. So hopefully we can get you guys some more information on that soon. Cool. Well, I know Perry's going to want to want to talk about that real quick, but I want to ask one more question about... So the loophole that I was actually talking about um, was, I, as I understand it, that the Boneyard Studios was actually deemed an exhibition space. Um, oh, right. Again, yeah. as I understand it, it wasn't fully legally or permitted. It, it's not legal to actually live in the space that you put these three tiny houses. So what I meant by loophole was the fact that you had gotten some sort of exhibition permit or space allowance or something like that. That's what I was talking about as far as a loophole. There's, you know, obviously there's a lot of discussion in the tiny house movement about zoning and mm -hmm. how to be creative in, in how you approach zoning and, and getting those rules uh, to go your way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we didn't actually have an official, like, <laughs> exhibition space. It was just, you know, we met with the city several times and, you know, they were always like, well, these aren't full-time residences. The fire department comes by. They came by a lot. Um, and they just would always say, hey, we understand that you guys aren't living here full-time. We understand what this is. However, we need to know, do you ever sleep here? Because if we ever get a call that there's a fire, we really want to know, are we rushing there, or is this just a structure with no one in it? So uh, then we would say, yeah, actually, we do sometimes sleep here. Not so. off sometimes. Right. 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 Hmm. In the loft. J Jay's, Jay's house was that, was that big one, right? The, the biggest of the three? No, that's Brian's house. That's the Minim house. Okay. Um, Jay's, interesting, they both have M names, but Jay's house is the Matchbox house. His is the charred cedar yeah, siding. Charred it looks one. like a box. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and how, well, at, at, in, in the lifespan of the original Boneyard Studios, how many, what was the maximum number of homes that were on there? We had four, and then we had a shipping container for storage. Uh -huh. um, we originally had planned to have five. Wow. total but I think four was kind of like the max once we were all out there we realized like they'd have to be right up next to each other and Brian had created a pretty large garden space so that took up a lot of the of the property as well so I think four was the max we had out there at one time okay and and uh, we'll get back to Boneyard in a minute um, but what do you what is it that you were talking about a minute ago that you're getting involved in now 
Um, there's some of us who have been meeting for quite some time now, about a half a year, um, because, well, ever since I've started um, the project, I've really seen there's awesome, like one person, two person, three person tiny house companies out there doing plans, builds, um, you know, education, blogging. But I've really seen outside of the tiny house Facebook people's group, there really isn't an overarching resource um, where cities and people interested in tiny houses can go for information. Um, the American, the I always called it the American Tiny House Association, but I'm not sure if that's its official name anymore. Um, I was involved back when we first started talking about that um, at Yestermaro Design School. So I'm happy to see that that's sort of getting off the ground. Um, but yeah, there's several of us who are starting um, kind of a, uh, a collaborative business together. So I'm not going to say a lot more about it right now other than we're just going to you know, try to provide an overarching resource and really promote a lot of the resources that are out there. Um, so it's not a builder's association or a... a nope. Okay. No scoop What's for you. What's my line? No you, scoop for you. Do you know about when you guys will be ready to announce approximately? Yeah, with, by the end of this month. Okay. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Oh, well, you know, this, this, by the end of January... Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you can talk about it now because this isn't going to air until late February or March. That's right. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Okay. So it is. Talk about a drum roll. <laughs> All right. And it is? Uh, it's called the Tiny House Collaborative. Um, and That's there's cool. seven of us across the country who, are, who have been meeting um, and really just trying to think of ways we can help each other. Uh, so it came out of lots of conversations we had at the Tiny House Jamboree. And especially me, like, I'm like, you know what, I'm, I'm ready to sort of do more within the tiny house movement. I don't think the tiny house movement needs one more one person company. Like I'd rather help another company or another initiative that already exists and help grow that. And so there was a bunch of us who came together and had similar thoughts, like rather than me doing workshops or me, you know, I, I'm actually working on um, a zoning map right now that we will publish on the website uh, because a lot of cities contact me and say, hey, do you know other cities who are doing X, Y, or Z? And I'm a geographer by training, so I just want to see that all on a map with links to the documents, <laughs> so that's what I'm working on. But rather than just me having that on an individual site that, you know, is just me, I thought, why not, you know, combine a bunch of folks who are already very active in the tiny house movement? Um, so, yeah, we've all been meeting. We've met in person twice. We've, we have weekly chats and are all just figuring out ways that we can really help promote each other's products and services, but also um, just be this larger resource for the tiny house world. That's and fantastic. we'll see what happens. You know, I don't think any of us are invested in this as like having to be one thing. It's just a way for us to continue working together and supporting each other on the side. Um, and so it's fun. What was, what was we'll the name? We'll be at the tiny house jamboree too. We will be there. What was the name of it again? Tiny House Collaborative. Okay. Did you guys meet in Florida? Yes, we did. So you probably know who's involved. Yeah, there was a rumor from someone, uh, I won't mention the person's name, but her, the initials are Michelle Boyle. And, uh, she was saying that there was some group that was meeting in the in dark rooms smoking cigars and drinking Pinot Gris. Nice. 
no, 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 no. That, wait a minute. Wait, okay, wait, it was Cabernet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, it was a beer. It was whiskey. <laughs> no, I just told them, I said, something's going on. Mm-hmm. A bunch of movers and shakers are all hanging out. Something's going on. So I called it. Yeah, you sure did. <laughs> So, I know, that BA, she was just all over social media posting, and we said, BA, people are going to wonder what, why we're all hanging out in Florida together. <laughs> yep, if that was her goal, she accomplished her goal. <laughs> so, so what would you, <clears throat> so you know, the, one of the biggest challenges tiny houses are having are, are, is finding some place to put their homes, and there are some like, um, like um, uh, Lena and Menard who have successfully, successfully mm-hmm. found ways to build little tiny house communities, nice little enclaves here in Portland. What would you, um, what advice would you give the tiny house community, uh, people who are looking for ways to, to build these little things like you guys had with bon- Barnyard, Boneyard, <laughs> bar- bar- something. Wow. Wow. That would have been an interesting business model, but anyway. <laughs> anyway, yeah. what advice would you give for someone who wants to build a community like this? I would say that, you know, I mean, I really... The way that Lena went about it, they flyered a neighborhood, the neighborhoods they wanted to be in. They said, hey, this is what we're looking to do. We want to buy your house. And they had three or four different offers from people willing to sell them a house with a large yard. And so I, my number one thing is be proactive. You know, that's, that's how I got started was there wasn't anything in the area. Let me create a meetup group. Let me start meeting with folks who want to do this. Um, So, you know, if you're not finding something, be proactive and go out and flyer a neighborhood you want to live in. You know, maybe host an event at the library and invite folks. Um, I think meeting with your city can be a really good thing, but I think there's a, uh, we, you know, I corresponded and asked a lot of questions of the city before we started, but as most folks know, zoning is very black and white, so, you know, they just kept telling me, Yep, it's fine to park your trailer on private property, but you can't live in it full-time. Or it can't be your primary full-time permanent residence. Mm. So then I'd ask, well, what is primary full-time permanent residence? And they don't have a definition of that. Yeah. So then that, that's that gray zone. And so there's a balance between asking for the information you need and being okay being in that gray zone versus wanting everything to be fully legal. Right. And I think it's great that there are folks out there working with their jurisdictions to actually change zoning, but just recognize that that takes a lot longer. So if you want to start something right now, it might have to be the model that, you know, Lina has done or we've done with, you know, using more like business space or event space and not being able to live there full time. You know, I mean, in D.C., I have an apartment that I can go back to. I sublet it, but I still have access to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is, you know, if my house... If I can't live in it full time, I've got a backup. You know, some people don't have that. So then you're going to want to make sure that, you know, you've done a little bit more investigation um, and prep work. But the the model that Lina has out in Portland is really great, right? Because you've got a main house. Um, these are like your little, they can be work studio spaces, live studio spaces. Um, and you've got a main house with the utilities and everything you need there. So you don't need to build your house to have everything in it. Right. Cool. And, and any advice that you could give that, based on your experience with, with Boneyard, that, that people could use to avoid Yeah, absolutely. Conflict? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I, you know, I don't really, there are regrets I have for, cert, for certain. Um, and Jay, the other guy from Boneyard who left with me, 
you know, we chat a lot and we thought, oh my gosh, there's only three of us, three adults. How difficult can it be? Yeah. Well, the difficulty came with, you know, when Brian and I had gone to see the property, we were going to figure out a way to form a cooperative LLC and buy that property together. Um, he emailed me a few days later after meeting with his um, real estate agent to say he had signed. And I was like, what? He said, oh, don't worry. We'll talk about doing the cooperative LLC later. Uh, and then he kind of convinced us that, oh, it's better if just one person owns it. Eh, I knew that wasn't the case. Like, yeah. But at the same time, at that point in time in my life, I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't um, dedicated to staying here in D.C. for the long run. So I thought, you know what, maybe it is better that way. So we paid rent. And that's fine. But, you know, we all started, we just started building. We didn't really sit down and think, like, what's going to be our decision-making structure and so when it came about to having those discussions, it became very apparent and clear that one person, Brian, who owned the property, his decision would always override the yeah. rest of us. Yeah. So there was no collaborative decision-making structure because even when there were four or five of us and we were making decisions, if he wanted something to change, he would just change it. So it's more about, I would say, my, you know, and that's one model, but I didn't start the project going in thinking we were going to have that model. So that's why um, I think, you know, if someone goes in to a landlord-type situation knowing that, okay, this person is going to make all the decisions and they're okay with that, that could be a fine model. Um, but I would prefer, if I were to do something in the future again, to really try to do a cooperative LLC model. That's what Lina has at their community. Um, so you really prevent that one person um, kind of making all the decisions just because they own the property or because they started it. Um, but, you know, RV park style communities, um, even down in Orlando, though, where James Taylor's getting the community off the ground, you know, they have they have a kind of a, a decision-making body there. It's not one person making all the decisions for the community. This is That's not James Taylor the singer, right? No. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask, sorry. I've seen it's fire and I've seen tiny houses. <laughs> so sorry. God. That was the that was the community you met in Orlando. Yes, exactly. That's oh, where gotcha. they met in Orlando. Oh, I see. The whole he little top I, secret I want to party. Clarify, Elaine really tried to get that going off the ground too. Um, but there were only two houses down there for a long while, hers and then someone else's. And then since James has moved down there, there's about 12 houses, 12 tiny houses now. Wow. And so because awesome. that RV park owner is really interested in kind of helping to convert that to a tiny house community. So That's it's, awesome. Yeah. I would think that if you were, if you were, so if you, if you got together with a, with a couple folks and one of those folks bought the land and you ended up paying rent, not you specifically, but one ended up paying the rent, it would automatically feel weird mm-hmm. that everybody's paying to one person who's then paying for the whole yeah thing. and they're paying rent as opposed to like own in paying into an mm-hmm. ownership stake in the property yeah yeah but it would be it also be hard to manage one fifteenth ownership of well, the property yeah yeah you know i mean that's the whole co-op model right yeah, yeah. how you deal with disagreements when one or two people go in a whole different direction mm-hmm. well it's interesting because i've actually been doing some research and meeting with other folks who've set up cooperative land ownership models um and you know one of the ways to do it is to actually do a nonprofit model but that takes a long time so i met with a group well i met with a guy who has property there's 20 people who have a cooperative llc and they've separated the use rights from the shareholder rights 
they've done some really interesting things to make sure that, you know, if for some reason they would get someone who's kind of crazy and they don't feel comfortable with them on the property, then those use rights are separate from from the actual rights to own the property. And he said it's in, he said he was very suspect of the ability for 20 people to make decisions and manage this property where they all have vacation homes and stuff. Sure. But he said what's interesting is that when they have their meetings, because everyone knows that they will need buy-in for a project they want to do at some point in time in the future, that people kind of just, you know, even if they're not as jazzed about something someone's proposed, proposing, they compromise because they realize the benefit of it. And they've, they've had this property together now for like 25 years. Wow. Um, so there are models out there that, that work with a lot more people than what we had. Huh. Sure. Interesting. Well, um, Lee, this has been a great conversation. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today and being on the Tiny House podcast. Uh, any last words you want to give to our listeners before we sign off? I, don't, I just think that people should understand that they are in a really privileged spot right now, I think, in the tiny house movement because there are so many cool new designs coming out and technologies and resources, and I just wish that I were starting now and could take advantage of all of that rather than having just completed my house. So awesome. feel grateful for all of that. Awesome. <laughs> I do. Very good. Very good. <laughs> well, well thank, thank you, Lee, very much for, your, for, your, uh, for being here. Yeah, thank and, you. And we, Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. And uh, tune in next week, listeners, to Tiny House Podcast, where we'll be talking with somebody interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Whose name? Want, do you want the list? Do you want the list? <laughs> no, no, it's okay, because you, know, you never know. <laughs> so, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's it. See ya, be ya. See ya. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if we remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Maine. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sightcast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever. You tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon. <laughs>